Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is someone I go way back with. I mean, well over a decade. His name is Jared Pritchard, and he is an engineer, musician, and producer out of the Orlando, Florida area. And I mean, he's done so much mixed for TV, live sound production. Like he has done all kinds of different things that fall under the uh, umbrella of audio engineering and all at a super high level. And some of the bands he's worked with are some of my favorites, like Goat Horse, Cynic, 1349, and many, many more. This is just a, a dude who has been crushing it for a very, very long time. I messed up. I didn't realize that he produced the last Goat Horse record. And so what I had uh, Sammy Duet and Kerpaloo on to talk about making that record, I found out during that conversation that my old friend Jarrett had produced it and I felt like an idiot. And so it felt like the right thing to do an episode with Jarrett. So let's get on with this. Jarrett Pritchard, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. Dude, it's been a long fucking time. I know. It really has. Probably like eight, nine years or more. It's been a while. I left Florida in 2014. Shit. Yeah. So it has. It's been nine years. Crazy. It has been a while. And it was really cool to just kind of start seeing your name all over sick metal records. Obviously, I always knew you in a professional capacity. But to start hearing about you like with Goat Whore and then, you know, 1349. And it was just cool to uh, start hearing your name pop up with like super legit bands that I actually listened to. And I've just heard your name more and more and more in those circles. I know that you've been working in live sound for those bands for a while, but what caused the transition to actually producing those bands? Well, I I was always a studio engineer. I mean, I I started in the 90s with my own studios. Like I owned a couple of different ones. I had retired for a long time from live sound because I had kids and I was like being a dad or whatever. And 
3049 asked me to go out with them when they did the carcass tour in 2008. That's kind of like my return. And once I got out there and I was touring and doing this and that and the other, um, I don't know, opportunities came up. We built relationships. You know, I would think probably making records is as much about that as the technical aspect of it. And, you know, so, you know, gruesome came to me and asked me to mix the first gruesome record for them. I, you know, I was doing records here and there, but it got more constant when I did Savage Land. And then from there, then I went and did 3049. And then, you know, a bunch of stuff started coming. It just, it was just a shift of focus is all. Like at first it was just like I was touring, I was making money. I wasn't really thinking about the studio. I was just trying to pay my bills. And then opportunities came up and more and more. And then, you know, I just kept doing it and it it seems to have a mind of its own. I would love to say that I knew what I was doing and directing all this to happen, but that's definitely not the case because it just seems like good fortune to me. I think there's definitely a lot of good fortune involved with anything involving music and success with it. But building relationships, I think, is the thing that creates that good fortune. Skills, I almost feel like that technical aspect is assumed, right? Like you're not going to be in the conversation or even have the chance to build the relationships if that part's not there. So I feel like that's just kind of like the base level. So beyond that, it comes down to the relationships, I think. Yeah. And I would say the people that I work with, one, I think probably the most important thing is that they trust me. Yeah. I actually had a question about that, about the trust aspect. Obviously bands trust their front of house engineer if they're bringing them on tour and have brought them on tour more, more than once. Sure. There's also this stereotype, which is, I think, based in a lot of reality, that front of house, uh, engineers suck at studio mixing. The stereotype is there because of, I think it's just two different disciplines in that, you know, front of house, you got to do everything super, super fast. You don't have time to tweak. I mean, you can tweak some, but like you don't have four days to get drum sounds. Like it is what it is. And it's trying to get the most out of whatever quick situation you're in. And it's that is one particular skill set and someone who becomes awesome at that. I don't think it necessarily translates one to one to the studio. That's a whole other type of mindset, skill set. I'm not saying that there's a stereotype that front of house engineers are bad engineers. It's just it's like comparing classical guitar with electric guitar. It's like, yeah, they're both guitars, but completely different skill sets just because someone's good at classical guitar doesn't mean they're going to be able to play with a pick or play metal or something. So how did the trust for you as a studio engineer build? I think it was because I was more of a studio engineer that was just doing front of house because I knew mm-hmm. how to. Got it. And, you know, and the thing is, too, you're right. You're exactly right. It's the difference between using a scalpel and a sledgehammer, like live, it's a sledgehammer. Like it's now, this is what's in front of me. I have to make it work. It's usually very fast, you know, and not a lot of time to think. Whereas, you know, obviously on a record, you have time to really sort of, you know, surgically make something be what you need it to be. The big thing that I think is weird about it, because I I knew you were going to ask me this. So I was thinking about it the other day. The one thing that's kind of interesting is is that live, it's now. And so a lot of what I do 
in addition to make records is I'm a system tech. So I'll go out and design a PA for an arena show and go and deploy it and tune it and time align it and all that stuff. In a way, it's like making a record, but I'm creating the acoustic environment every day. Whereas like, you know, I set my studio up one time, you know, it's treated, my monitors do what they do and it's once. Mixing live is kind of like having to do that every single day, but it's also now, it's fleeting, it's in passing. It's a, a singular moment in time, you know, whereas making a record is obviously continuous, you know? So it's they're different, but the bands, I think people knew that I taught large format recording, you know, SSLs mm -hmm. and Neves and, and all that stuff. I also had a really long history of television mixing. I had done like 300 hours for Discovery and Nat Geo and stuff like that, and uh, I had played in bands. People knew of the bands I'd played in, and obviously I'd worked on the engineering of those. So I just, I don't know. I think probably my demeanor and just my execution of the day-to-day -day tasks made them know that they could count on me, I guess. I don't know. I think a lot of it does come down to that, man. There's so many people who, like, orbit in music that just don't follow through on things. They just don't execute. And I think that execution... It does matter, and people do notice it, especially over a long period of time. If you're just someone that gets the job done, lots of times, you know, like you can take a genius. We all know some genius types that are very, uh, let's just say, tough to work with or very like all over the place, like not good with deadlines, not good at executing. Though when they do work, it is like the most brilliant thing you can ever imagine, but just doing the work. <laughs> that's the challenge right there. And I think that people don't have time for that shit and they don't have the patience for that stuff. They would much rather work with uh, someone that executes. Now, if you're both good and you execute, that's the best of both worlds. But I think that even I would say, and you get this with musicians too, like you can take like 20% less talent, but like 50% more work ethic and it'll totally compensate. You see that with lots of musicians who have careers, being reliable and pretty damn good at it will beat being an Olympic level virtuoso who is impossible to deal with and unreliable. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I agree completely. I know a couple of those. We all do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a thing to behold to watch them when they do execute it, but the surrounding things can be sure. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. It sounds probably kind of weird, but I, I I, care about this a whole lot and I don't work on things I don't care about. I don't work mm -hmm. with people that I don't care about. So like what their situation is coming into it, like what their deadline is, what they need from me, how they're going to be perceived, what's happening at the other end of my hands is extremely important to me. And I, I know that that sounds obvious, but I don't think it necessarily is. I think that there's some instances where there's a process or there's a machine and we're, we're just running things through, you know, yes, feel like that. If I don't care about it, I can't do it. I get it. If I don't have that thing, if I don't attach to it, if I don't have a vested interest in it, I just am not super great at it. But I'm lucky that I love engineering so much that pretty much any opportunity, like the material, I, I can almost find a reason to appreciate and connect with almost anything that comes across my desk. So that's an advantage, I guess. I don't know. I completely understand what you're saying, though, because I feel like I'm the same way. There's this part of my brain, and I wish I was different, 
but I kind of have given up on trying to change this about myself because believe me, I've tried. There's this part of my brain that just doesn't switch on if I'm not interested in something. And like, I, there's no amount of work ethic my way out of that situation. Like I, if my brain does not engage no amount of caffeine, no amount of pep talks, like nothing. It's weird. I feel like my IQ drops by like 30 points and like <laughs> my ADD I, goes up by like 200%. When I'm interested in something, I'm a fucking killer. So I have realized that it's really, really important for myself and also everyone around me that, uh, that I'm very, very brutally honest and focused on those things that do get that side of me because that's what gets the best results. That's what gets everybody else like the best possible situation out of me. It's hard, man. Yeah. I mean, there's one record. I'm not going to say who, but you know, I, if I look at a situation going in and I know that it's going to be a fucking nightmare and I'm not going to be able to do it, like I'll pass on it no matter how big it is. Like if I know that I'm not going to be able to drop in there and really, like you said, you know, get that best aspect out of me, for whatever reason, I'll usually I'll pass. Like, I'll just be like, yeah, it's not for me. Maybe somebody else should take this one. That's great. That's not going to hurt your reputation. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, early in your career, when people don't have work, we've all been there, that drive to say yes to everything is very strong. And you probably should say yes to everything. But I think that one thing that you learn as you go is that saying yes to things that you're not going to do as great of a job on is going to hurt you more than just saying no. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. But at the same time, you, you gotta have to have a good, like, uh, good perspective of where you're at. Because there's a point where you really should be saying yes to everything and sucking it up and just do the fucking work. Like, I, the, I think that what we're talking about is a luxury that happens once you've been in the game for a little while, where you can say no. So I'm just saying that for people listening who are like in the early, early stages, we are not in any way, shape or form suggesting that you uh, start pretending like you're Andy Sneap or something and can choose who you work with. No. And I mean, also too, you know, I mean, and, uh, you know, I, I think about people that are coming in and, you know, joining this, you know, community at this point in, in time. And there's so much information available and it's such a, a glorious thing because, you know, when I started, I mean, I had a, a growing up background in engineering because of my dad. So, I mean, I had kind of a jump start. But when I figured out this was what I was going to do, I was feverish. I mean, every book, I mean, sitting there reading the audio cyclopedia, you know, every magazine, because I didn't really have the internet. You know, I called studios and blah, 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 blah. I was just really, really, really intense about it. And for, you know, when you're early and you can't turn down things, you know, every experience, everything that you come across is going to be a learning experience. And when when it's first happening, you know, the two things that are probably the most important is tenacity. Like, if you really are going to do mm -hmm. this, you, like, the first few years are going to be a bitch. There's no two ways about it. It's going to be hard, you know. And you, you really have to lean into it and just say, this is what's happening. I know that this will work if I do my part of it. If I keep my side of the street clean, if I apply myself, if I do this, I know that it will happen. It just might take time. I don't really know that there's instant gratification. I think it takes to work. But the whole point to this was is that there amount of information that's available to you that I wish was there when I was starting 
is spectacular. It's an amazing time to want to learn this because there's so much there. Do you know what's funny? Like, I remember those days. Like, so I only ever wanted to be an engineer because I wanted to be able to record my own music. And in the late 90s, it was like you could either go to the big-ass studios that were like 1200 a day or you could go to some shitty metal studio and get garbage. But in, at the $1,200 a day studio, it was also you're going to get garbage because you'd get somebody who hated metal. So that's <laughs> the reason that I decided to to try to learn. And finding information was like being a forensic scientist or something. It was like barely anything out there and everything's very abstract. Trying to learn audio through books. It's like trying to like learn how to cook without tasting food doesn't make any sense. And uh, so that's, that's actually part of why started URM was to kind of change that, especially in the world of heavy music. Cause even at that time, yeah, you could go to the, a regular school to learn the, you know, the craft of recording, but there was literally zero about metal. Metal kind of has its own its own rules, I think. And so that's actually the reason that I started URM. And what was funny about it was when we started, there was a lot of pushback. Like a lot of a lot of people were thinking that it was going to replace their jobs and that like we were giving away the secrets and like that it was like a dirty thing to do. But the way I saw it and the way I still see it was every other genre on earth You can go to an actual university and learn how to do it. You can learn how to play it. You can learn how to write it. You can learn how to record it. Like our art form, which is now at that point was 40 years old, has literally zero. So what's going to happen when the Sneep and Richardson generation die? Like what is their information? It's just going to disappear. Like all this, all this greatness is just going to evaporate. Like that's bullshit. Like it has to be documented and so that the next generation can like learn from the previous one and it needs to be taken seriously because it's a serious genre. It's like serious art and why should every other genre be taken seriously and this one not? And just because we're showing people how to do it doesn't mean that other people are not going to get work. If you suck, maybe, maybe you've got something to worry about, but like, if you're if you're good, somebody learning how to mix is not going to dethrone you. I absolutely don't worry about whether or not I'm going to work. And I, I'll even go further to say this. I mean, anyone, even if it's like a Facebook message or something, if somebody writes me and asks me a question, I'm going to answer them. Like I'm yeah. a million percent about sharing the information. Like I'm not afraid of someone else trying to, to join this community. That doesn't make me afraid. Because there's plenty of music to be done. Uh, some people bring different things to the table. I mean, I, I have a lot of technical skill. But I don't think that's what I bring to the table when I make a record. I mean, yeah, I do. You know, I mean, it takes years to know, you know, hey, drummer, you know, like push on the one, pull back, you know, lean yep. in, this, that, and the other. It takes to be the guy. I tune my own drums. I don't use drum techs. I tune my own shit. That took years to learn, you know. 
you know, because you're a guitar player, just like me, like tuning, like, are you in fucking tune on this low tune part where blah, 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 blah. are you in tune? These are things that take years and years of skills to develop no matter who you are. And so somebody coming in that wants to learn and wants to go through that process and wants to build those skills or whatever, I'm, 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 a thousand percent happy to share anything I've figured out because you were talking about like how abstract it is to learn how to engineer out of a magazine. I remember early on, I read compress the snare drum. So I had a snare drum I recorded and I put a compressor on it and I like, you know, roasted it. And I was like, that sounds like shit. What are they talking about? And, you know, it took me a minute by myself to understand exactly. attack and release. Like, why a FET compressor? Why a VCA compressor? Which color of the palette is going to do what I want it to do? What are the variables? All of that stuff took a minute, and it that definitely was not in the magazine I was reading. It said compress the snare drum, and of course, I did it the wrong way, and it sounded horrible. I went through the process, and I learned it. So, at this point, the way things are now with all the communication— I think it's fantastic. I mean, people share with me, you know, like some of my favorite engineers, if I have a question, even now, all the way out here at 50 years old, still learning, I'll write them, you know, it's like, what do you think about this? Like, what's your approach? What's your thoughts? And I have people that I look up to that are good in the same way, that have no problem sharing the information. So I think at any other concept of what should be going on here it might be a little bit misguided. I think it's important to reach down and pull up the next generation. It's just me. Yeah, I totally agree that it's misguided. Plus, what you just said, that what you're bringing to the table is far beyond technical, and that's it's exactly right. Like, the thing that you cannot teach anybody is how to hear things, and you can't teach someone taste, and you can't teach somebody judgment. Like, And making records, technical aside, comes down to taste and judgment right? You know, the, the whole relationship aspect too, but having the right kind of taste, the right judgment calls, like, and hearing things the right way for the project, like that, that is a completely unique thing, unique to the individual. And there will always be some people, I think, who are more like, uh, the same way that like some people have more like natural ability on an instrument, and then they can practice and become even better. Like there's some people who are just naturally going to be more in tune with, uh, you know, understanding other people's like intentions or their tastes are going to be naturally aligned with artists they work with or more in tune with like, I guess what the, the collective subconscious of the listening public is into. But like, I, I don't think that you can teach people those things. I think that that either is or isn't. And if you have it in you, you can develop it though. Well, I think, I mean, you know, like when I was like, when I was a kid, when I got into like, I mean, I always liked metal and stuff when I was little and about 1985 or whatever, I discovered punk rock music. And like, I have this emotional connection to the music that I love. And I always have since I was little. And, you know, like you're saying, figuring out that intention, this, that, and the other, being able to like listen to what your artist is doing and catch where that's coming from. Because, you know, I mean, in many ways, you know, music is like the, 
telepathic language. You know, somebody sits down with an instrument and they feel something, they create it, and that gets turned into notes, and then the notes go into the air, and then another person hears it, and it makes them feel a certain way. I mean, it's a it's an intangible language. But being able to listen to the artists that you're working with and get where they're coming from, and I work with mostly aggressive music, so like feeling that like lean in that, I don't know, I, I, b- being able to attach to what they're trying to convey is a thing I don't think that you can teach. I don't I don't think you can teach someone how to do that, you know, but it's really helpful because, you know, especially working with vocalists or whatever, you know, where you can get out there with them in the studio and, you know, and really like bring it out of them, you know, like, you know, this isn't a wall, this isn't a gobo, this is the audience, this is the congregation, you know, that's who you're addressing, you know. Being able to like catch what they're doing in their song, you know, like you're the narrator, you're the creature, you're the, you know, this out of the other. And it's that weird connection where you're able to like hear what somebody's doing in their song and and catch their intention. It's hard to explain, sorry, but it's it's important. It's really important. That's why I think that like URM, Nail the Mix, like this whole thing that we did had to come from inside the metal community and it couldn't like teaching people how to uh, produce and mix metal couldn't come from, I guess, the traditional academia because it has to come from people who are actually in it and love it. It's the same reason for why if you went to that $1,200 a day local studio with your death metal band, you'd come out with something that sounded like fucking garbage. You can't fake loving the genre, feeling the genre, and like being so in it for so long that it's basically on an instinctive level. So it's kind of like a for us bias kind of thing. Like it had to come from within the metal community. There's just, there's just no other way. And look, I don't know other genres that well. Like I listen to all different kinds of music, but I, I don't have the same connection to other genres. So I don't know how it works. Like, I don't know how it works in hip hop. I don't know how it works in country. I, I, just, I don't know. I can respect when I hear good stuff, but like, I don't feel the same thing that I do for metal. It's not as deep for me just because it's been my life for so long. And I think that that's the same way for almost everybody that's uh, professionally in metal. It's like their entire lifestyle is weird. And not to say that they don't do other things or don't interface with the real world or, you know, don't listen to other genres, but like that metal aspect of people's lives is like a very real thing and it's baked in. Like you don't choose it. It kind of chooses you and like it is kind of is what it is. I mean, it's also too like within metal in general. I mean, especially sort of with the production and touring and all this other level, That's it really is like a family. Like it's a community. Like I just did um, Hell's Heroes a week or two ago. I was doing Hellhammer, Triumph for Death, Possessed and Celtic Frost. And my friend, I brought an assistant with me because we were doing some recording, you know, and he's not a metal guy at all. And it was so funny to like watch him experience a metal fest because he was blown away by like the community and how nice everybody is. Because on the outside of the microcosm looking in, you might be like, you know, I don't know, you might have some weird ideas about what's going on inside heavy metal or whatever. But it's really interesting that like within it, it that it is family, it is a community, like far more than I think people would think it is. Like with the touring and the professional aspects of it, I feel like almost everybody sort of knows each other by like one degree of separation. Yeah, pretty much. Really, generally, 
most people are cool and fun to be around and, and, you know, professional as hell, like professional as you, you like, you wouldn't maybe think so in a genre of music that, you know, I don't know at times maybe has pig heads on stage or this side or the other, but it's amazing. But you have to be, but it's amazing how much it is. And I, it was fun to watch my friend cause he's a really good friend and a really great engineer, watch him experience it for the first time and watch him be blown away at like how, nice the musicians are at the how the crowd are like how professionally the show's done and so when you're involved in it in the metal world and we are a microcosm it really is a pretty neat little inner circle that's worldwide but it is something that's just in you i I don't think i could i don't think i could not be involved in it if i wanted to it's just there it's always there yeah there's no way no way out (laughs) yeah Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep, it's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. 
ABC Friday. It just takes one great idea to change your life. Shark Tank returns for its 15th season. I didn't know I was going to cry right now. With new guest sharks, Jason Blum of Blumhouse, Michael Rubin of Fanatics, and Candace Nelson of Sprinkles Cupcakes. I'm going to make you an offer. On a scale of 1 to 10. I've never seen anything like this on Shark Tank. This season is a 15. I totally believe in you. Shark Tank premieres Friday on ABC and stream on Hulu. That brings me to the goat whore record. When I invited Sammy and Kurt on, and I think we we did a great episode, I would have invited you on had I known you were on the record. I just didn't even know. I didn't know till we were in the conversation and your name came up. And I was like, oh, holy shit, that Jared Pritchard, the Jared Pritchard. And then I realized I've been hearing your name a lot more, but uh, I was really, really stoked to hear that you did that record because I love it. And this is no knock on any of their previous work at all. I think you know, everyone they've worked with is great, great people, great engineers, like great. And the records, they all work and they're all awesome. What I'm about to say is in no way, shape or form a knock on anybody. However, I've toured with Goat Whore a lot. I think they're the band that Doth has toured with more than any other band. Like, I think we must have done like 200 shows together or something over between 2006 and 2009. Um, So I know what they sound like at their best. I know what they're like at their worst. I know what they're like at their best. Like I know what they're like in the middle. Like I am super familiar with them. Since the first show of that first tour we did together, it was a cattle decapitation tour. Sammy blew my mind with uh, how incredible his guitar tone is. It's not the type of thing you see on Instagram with like this like new wave of like perfect guitar players. His ability to play metal and to sound sick playing metal in his right hand is just like, it's among the best I've ever encountered. And to this day, maybe the best tone I've ever heard out of a guitar player up there with like Gojira. So, and this Goat Whore record, not to like, not trying to like huff your farts or anything, but it's the first record where I feel like the Goat Whore that I toured with, that's what I'm hearing. All the other records sound awesome, but this is the one where like, it has the energy, I guess, the that energy that made me watch them most nights and dude you know on tour you might watch the bands you're not playing with or working with once or twice but you're not going to watch them every night they're one of the only bands that i watch like i'd say 75 percent of the nights they are um they're something else i think that they're i think everything that you said about sammy is true i mean they, i think everyone in the band is incredibly solid i think ben's one of the best front men in metal oh yeah I think that what I love about their shows the most is is that they don't really put on airs. There's not like this sort of persona, like you're getting the same guys in the in the van, but the same guys in the van are that intense. Like they're just, that's who they are. Yes, they sure are. You know, that sense of humor that Ben has where he'll crack a joke in between songs because he knows he's about to count four and, you know, split skulls. Like, you know, it's like that... It's an interesting thing that I've seen watching them, mixing them over the years of just like that confidence because they are they are truly a great band. They are truly great. As far as the records go, 
I did Vengeful, the last one, and uh, my buddy Chris Common, who had done, I, I was familiar with him because he had mixed Helms Lee. I don't think I heard that one. Vengeful Ascension we did at uh, Matt Talbot's spot in Illinois. The lead singer from Hum owns a studio there called Earth Analog that's really cool. And we did that record there. Like I said, my friend Chris Common mixed it for us, and um, I really like how that one came out. So... They said, well, we're going to go and do this studio. And we had the opportunity to go to this place called Studio in the Country that I was really, really, really into going to because it's basically, it's an old Westlake room in the middle of the swamp in Louisiana. And it's got, you know, 80 Series Neve in it. Uh, it's just a really spectacular place. And it has the only functional, as far as I know, freestanding echo chamber that's out there. So I was really stoked on it. So, you know, it, we just went in and we started doing it and uh, doing the drums. You know, Zach is really solid. He's really focused. Uh, he's really consistent. Like, his dynamics are really consistent, which is... Dude, he's great. You know as well as I do, that makes it a lot easier to make a record when the drummer's just... He filled in for us on a tour. Oh, yeah? So, played with him, and uh, that's... He's a severely underrated drummer. Like, people... it's He's just as good as any of the the top tier of metal drummers, you just don't hear about him as much, but like, dude, he's fucking great. So his consistency is the part that is so impressive. Well, also too, with Sammy and Zach, like musically speaking about that band, it's never flash. It always serves the song. That's yep. why their songs are phenomenal. That's why they're memorable is because they're, nobody's doing the look at me thing. Not that I have a problem with that. I like some really technical stuff. But those two guys, they're, they're playing, they super serve the song. It makes it easy to mix them live. It makes it easy to make a record. And so with Angels getting doing the guitar sound, which is probably the thing that's the was the biggest, like drums aren't super hard for me, you know, tune them phase, put good drums in there, put a good guy on it, point the microphone right. You know, it's it's not rocket science, but maybe it is. I don't know. Anyway, guitars are a little bit more ambiguous. So we went through, we took apart every single cabinet that he has, took the grills off of them, was auditioning mics, you know, on every single speaker. Then we went through every pickup and every guitar. We went through probably six maybe more guitar heads using, you know, like gain chokes on 800s, everything you can imagine. And the funny thing is, and he'll kill me for saying this, but I'm going to do it anyway. We go through all that and we always come back to the same thing. It's, you know, his pedals. Bad Monkey. Bad Monkey and the Michael Klein Bad Monkey. We had Two pickups, he used a blackout on one. We used the Lawler on the other track. And it's because it's the dude. The sound is there. The sound is there. Don't, you don't super have to fuck with it. It's there. It's him. I mean, it's the guy. He's not going to let anything else happen. You can get as adventurous as you want to and start throwing all these weird things. I'm going to put an HM2 in there and see how Sammy sounds through to you. It doesn't matter because he's not going to let it happen because he knows what he sounds like. My job just becomes to reproduce it right. You know, microphones. I, you know, I ended up using um, a cabinet from a company called Warlock in addition to one of his Randall cabs. Uh, 
The Weber Gray Wolf and Silver Wolves were in it in an X pattern. I like the Gray Wolves the best. So that was one of my, you know, and it was basically that and his Randall cabinet and then switching off between two heads, two different guitars, two different overdrive pedals. And then your inclination, I think a lot of times, especially if you kind of have an idea when you've done a lot of records or whatever, is to do things a certain way or you have your go-tos. And I would say that he, that guy, recording that guy, is a guy where you kind of got to throw all that out. It needs to be what it is because he really, he's picky. You know, he he won't start recording until it's right, which I, I super appreciate that. Somebody that's willing to put the time in to get the tone when we're tracking, we're not going to fix it in the mix. We're not going to reamp it. We're not having that discussion. We're getting it now. I'm going to hear what I want now. And then we'll start. That's Sammy a million percent. So once you track it, you don't have to do anything to it. It's just, there it is. Put the faders up because that's what the guy wants. You might control some low end. You might do, you know, a little multi-band compression on your low. But yeah. Low mids. You know, you might do like a little bit of a roll off. Um, You know, amplifiers to me tend to will have a squeak. I call it a squeak in them, usually up high, somewhere around like 2 to 4K that I usually will just get in my ear and I'll want to go just get that tamed down like but for the most part it just that that was his tone and you know we did that record at studio in the country and then we had some vocals to pick up and we had some um like little acoustic guitar things and this that and the other that we needed to do so then I came home I got all the editing done I got it off to Kurt so he could start getting his part wrapped around what he was going to do with it you know start working on the drums and all this other stuff and then those guys flew in here, to, or they drove here to Florida to this studio, Sammy and Ben, and we finished it up, you know, and we, you know, looked at the guitars again and, you know, brought the faders up and made sure that everybody was on the same page and then finished up the vocals. And then from there, we just gave it to Kurt and Kurt, you know, he did a fantastic job. There's no two ways about that. Yeah. I love Kurt's mixes. I just I felt like it was like a Whatever you did production-wise with Goat Whore and then with Kurt's mix, it was just a great pairing, I thought. It sounds phenomenal. And the thing that I want to talk about a little bit is what you just said about that tone. That is Sammy. Like, he knows what he sounds like. And that's I think that's a very important thing for uh, for people to realize. Uh, it was, uh, I, real, I was fortunate that I learned that thing at an, early age. Now I've talked about it before, but my dad conducted the orchestral Ingve record like in the nineties. And so I got to spend like a week with Ingve in 1996 or seven or something. And so I heard him, you know, playing through his big setup. I heard him playing through like a little practice amp. I heard all kinds of versions of Ingve and they all sounded like Ingve. And no, no matter what he was playing on, it just sounded like him. Like he knew his sound. He knew his style. Like he was him and he was himself no matter what. And when you have these players with a, with an iconic or recognizable sound, what a lot of people don't realize if they've never been around it is that this is what they sound like when they're just in a room plugged into something like this is not something that the producer creates yet. Like you said, the producer you capture it, but like musicians like that, like that's what's coming out of their 
guitar. Obviously, the gear makes a difference. Like, so, you know, the the Randall thing does make a difference. But still, like, when you're listening to a player like that just play outside of a mix, just on their own, that's what they sound like. That's what's coming out. Like, so that does not get invented in the studio. And so, you know, to people who are working with bands that don't, you know, I would say this, especially for people working at a local level, if you're not getting, because I know this was frustrating for me, like when I was first working with bands was like, I was trying to get it to sound like stuff that I wanted it to, you know, wanted it to be like, it was just not getting there. And then I had to remind myself what this, that's not what these dudes sound like. Like they kind of sound crappy and like, they're never going to sound like this record that I look up to. They're never going to sound like this iconic guitar player because they don't sound like this iconic guitar player. Like it's a very, very, uh, it's a very simple and self-evident thing. But if you've never seen it, I think you might, some people might not realize just how real that is, that iconic musicians sound like themselves. So you and I both have had a lot of experience with probably mixes being flown into you where you're going to do the reamping yourself, right? Yes. And so you can have like a wall of amplifiers. I got one right here. And it can be a guitar tone that has worked a hundred times on a hundred different things because a <laughs> DI signal basically is what it is. Where's the variable? Right there. For people listening, he was saying hands. Uh, I mean, in their hands. It's in a lot of times. It's in their right hand if they're they're picking hand, be it you know left handed, right handed. Yep. And so, you know, for people that are starting out recording themselves or they're getting ready to go in the studio, the thing that I I see on this topic where guitar is concerned that I I, I think needs to be addressed practice because so much of it is in your hands. I mean, if we take like icons, like I was a big Morbid Angel fan. Like I think Trey Azagthoth is, you know, a great guitar player. I loved Alters of Madness. The guy, it's in the guy's hands, you know? Oh, yes. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was friends with them and I went over to the warehouse and he had his amp set up or whatever. And he's like, you know, Jared, you know, play this for me so I can stand back here and listen to it. So I took the, you know, the Explorer. We were, he was on Black Explorers at the time and like went for Maze of Torment, you know, and I hit the thing and it's like, blink, there's like not much gain there. You know, I was expecting it to be super easy to go. It was like, blink, 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 because his grind, like his distortion is his picking hand. Like he has that thing. So when it comes to good guitar tones and things like that, or why Sammy is what he is, all I'm doing is long-windedly backing you up. It's here. It's a million percent here. It's the the way that these guys play, the amount of practice that they put in. And then it starts to go into the electronics of them reproducing themselves and actually putting some thought into like, well, what do I sound like? What does a microphone sound like when you put this on my amplifier or whatever? And, you know, so yeah, long-winded, but it's it's the hands so much. Practice, please practice. Yeah, on the topic of tone in the hands. So it's an interesting debate, right? Well, not debate, but it's an interesting topic because like I have seen people ask this question and it's a valid question. If tone is in the hands, then why do people care? Great guitar players too. Like it's not just shitty ones. Like why do great guitar players care so much about the gear? Obviously it's not just in the hands. And, um, and like, 
there is some truth to that, but like at the end of the day, it, it there's lots of variables. That's the most important one. That's like the X factor. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, okay. Why do they care about the gear? Well, because everybody wants to sound good, but I assure you that if it's not being played well, you can have the most expensive amplifier known to man and it's still going to be garbage. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's got to start there, but sure. You know I mean? Good gear, good pedals, knowing how to dial in a tone, knowing how to point a microphone, mic preamps. I mean, there's a lot there, but it definitely, I feel like it starts with the hands for sure. Yeah. I guess it's the same way, like a great drummer who hits right can make a kit that's badly tuned still sound better than a shitty drummer on a well-tuned kit. And I've experimented, like, do you know Matt Brown? Maybe. The dude that used to drum tech all my records back in Florida. I don't know if you ever met, but uh, anyhow, he's phenomenal. We experimented with this a few different times, uh, actually for a URM course, where it was like, awesome kit, really well-tuned, not as good drummer, versus shitty kit, badly tuned, great player. Dude, the difference was not subtle. I bet. Yeah, it's not subtle. So, like, of course, great drummer on the great kit, well-tuned, is ideal. But at the end of the day, the out of all the variables, the most important one is the is the human. You're right. The human is the variable. But I, I wanted to, like, bring this up on this, and I only touch on it for a minute. You know, there are a lot of shortcuts to making records and things nowadays that maybe you didn't have back in the day. You have cab IRs and you have, you know, lots of sampling and this, that, and the other. I I just wanted to like say that like the thing that I think is the most enjoyable about this is that if if you do the work and you learn the technical part of it, like you you why a FET compressor, why an optical compressor, you know, why this EQ versus this EQ, you know, like one all of that thinking gets out of the way and you start to be able to make records like you're painting a picture once you jump over that hump where you kind of build your palette by having an understanding of your equipment and what it does and all the various things that are engineer specific, how to point a microphone, you know, how to get your drum kit phase aligned. You know, that's one that gets by people a lot, especially on the records I get sent. Once you do the work and all that crap gets out of the way, that's when it starts to become art. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Like once that's not the forethought of your mind, once you've uh, gotten past that, that's when it really, I think that's when it got really fun for me, when it got to be like painting a picture with a band. You know, it's fantastic. You're playing a band. That's basically what you're doing when you're mixing. You're getting to play the ultimate instrument. But that's a kind of a crucial thing. Like, that's why you do the work. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with having technique as a as a player. Is uh, All it does is allow you to do more and not have to uh, struggle or think about it as much. Exactly, yeah. It, it's a very, very important thing. So one last thing I want to talk to you about before, uh, before we get off. Uh, I have to bring this up. I told you I was going to, but I have to bring this up just because every uh, longtime listener of this podcast knows the uh, the Bobcats episode. We did an episode with him. Maybe it's like episode number five or six. Like it was when we were brand new. It was an interesting guest. <laughs> it is one of the only times, actually the only time that 
I've ever had a tense episode and that was in 2015, like almost 400 episodes later, that one still <laughs> sticks out in my mind. And it's listening back to it. I listened back to it and was like, wow, this is a funny listen. And I couldn't tell if like, he just didn't like us or what, but he was not very nice to us. <laughs> so you worked under him. Uh, what was it like working under him? It was okay. I didn't have a, um, I don't know. I kind of just did the tasks. I met him when I first moved to Florida. I, I knew who he was. I was aware of his books. I just called him up. I was like, hey, I'm in Florida. My name's Jarrett. I'm an engineer and I'm going to come visit with you. I want to I want to meet you. I want to hang out. And I did. So I, you know, I just went to his house and he... Yeah you know, showed me into the studio and he sat down and talked to me and he played, he actually was mastering Necrophagist at the time and played that for me when I met him the first time. Oh, that's cool. And, you know, I met him and he was cool and some time went by and he gave me a call and he's like, I need an assistant, you know, a mastering assistant, basically to code. Like he would, you know, make the files and I would code them. Like I would do all the mm -hmm. PQ code and all the, you know, build the DDPs and quality control and all that shit. So I went and did it and, he was always very nice and agreeable to me. We've always been friends for a long time. I know that he has some strong opinions. I know that uh, I'm aware, although I didn't pay a lot of attention, I'm aware that he's certainly at times has rubbed people the wrong way. <laughs> I think Bob's smart guy. I don't have a problem with him, by the way. It's just, it's like, it's just an episode that just comes up over and over, like, we don't have very many other episodes that to this day people just list in like their like top five of episodes of ours ever just because it was, uh, I don't want to say explosive, but uh, it was something. It was definitely something. But I also know that he's phenomenal and his books are, you know, the gold standard. I feel like knowing him and everything, I'm, I learned a lot about coding, but I didn't learn a lot about mastering. Like, I felt like that was very separate from my job. Like, I wish I'd have been able, like, I would ask him questions and his answer would be, well, you're asking me how to become a world-class mastering engineer. And I would be like, no, I'm asking you, you know, how much parallel compression you slipped under that because I know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> and it, so, it, you know, I didn't really learn a lot about that, but I learned a lot about coding and I learned about uh, a lot about um, QC like I said, you know, we, we've been friends for a long time. I don't see him as much as I used to or whatever. You know, some people have strong opinions and have strong personalities, and that can sometimes be a good thing, and sometimes it can be an abrasive thing. I think we've all experienced it. But as far as I go, I worked for him for a minute. I got an opportunity to do Cynic. I got me you know, the Cynic tour. That's when I worked for him. It was in 2010. I had written Masvidal and said, you know, I love Cynic. I want to mix Cynic. They wrote me back, and they said, okay, well— what they said to me, they said, someone as cocky as you is one of two things. They're either really good or really full of shit. So why don't you tell us how you will mix Cynic? That's what they said to you? Timon said it to me, basically, yeah. Amazing. I love that. Oh, it's fantastic. So I wrote them like a three-page, like, step-by-step -step processing, patching, gain staging, you know, everything about what I would do with Cynic. And I got like a one-sentence response back and said, yep, you're the guy. And then I got the job. And then I left working with Bob and them. You know, that was a long time ago, in like 2010, I guess it was. Yeah. And then I went and did Cynic, which was really fun. Let me tell you what. I'm going to nerd out for a minute. I went to San Pedro, and I sat down in a little tiny room and put on some headphones, and Cynic proceeded to play Focus front to back 
with me sitting there. Wow. And you want to talk about mind blown, like mind fucking blown. Yeah, it was pretty amazing, man. Amazing. Yeah, that that's <laughs> really, really great. It was. It was great. They were really fun to mix, fun to tour with. Cynic was amazing. I agree with what they're saying. It's like when someone is that forward, yeah, it is one of two things. Absolutely. They are either full of shit or like they know that they're the right person for the gig and you got to find out somehow, right? That's right. Exactly. I think that they were right to ask and it was really funny. And I'm, you know, there are even YouTube videos out there of those shows from that time, like ones from uh, rock and roll arena in Sessia in Italy that I still listen to the version of textures from that night. I'm like, God, it's crazy that that was like, that I was a part of that. Like it's, it's such a trip. You know, it's uh, history. For sure. I mean, it really is. Yeah. In closing, you know, as far as I go, it seems like when you get the idea that I'm going to go work in rock and roll, that this is going to be easy and this, that, and the other. And I don't think that it is at all. I think it, it, it requires a lot of love and a lot of dedication. But I just want to tell anybody that's starting, you know, and it, and it is hard to start and you're going to go through it for a minute. The rewards that I've gotten from being an engineer, I mean, I have Edar from 1349 in my kitchen right now shipping his beer because he flew over to see me. So, you know, those guys are some of my best friends. The experiences that I've gotten to have for doing this, for putting in the work, for not giving up, for caring about what I'm doing, I can't even express how amazing they are. So, like, whatever you have to do, if you really care about this thing, I promise you it's worth it. It is the most rewarding life I can possibly imagine. Yeah, I'm with you. If you actually stick it through, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, basically. It's worth it, in my opinion, too. Yeah. It's just you got to go through the, you know, got to go through the dark times at first. And sometimes in the middle, too. Sometimes, sure. Yeah, that's just, that's just a part of it. But, uh, Jared, it's been awesome catching up. It should be less than 10 years before the next time we catch up. Definitely. But thank you very much for coming on and... Thanks for being open with all your answers and, you know, great work with that goat whore and everything. Thank you, man. It's great to see you. And thank you very much for having me. I was really excited to be a part of this. So thank you. It's a pleasure, man. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.